Hey there, this is Brian Zahn. We'll get to the sermon in a moment, but I wanted to let you know that Water to Wine 2019 is coming up June 13, 14, and 15. What is it? Well, it's a gathering right here in St. Joseph for those who sense the falseness prevailing in Americanized Christianity and yearn for something better. It's a gathering for those who want to see the church rescued from fundamentalism, consumerism, and nationalism. It's a gathering for those asking Jesus to transform their spiritual life from water to wine. Perry and I, of course, will be there, but we've invited some of our close friends to come and also be presenters, people like Sarah Bessie, Jonathan Martin, Cheryl Bridges-Johns, Rich Velodos, Joe Beach, and Derek Vreeland. We're all going to be there, and you can register now. You probably need to get on this and register now, and you do that at watertowinegathering.com. Watertowinegathering.com. Register for our Water to Wine Gathering this June here in St. Joseph. And in the Spirit... He carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. This is the final Sunday of Eastertide our six-week celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's also the final sermon from the book of Revelation. The Apocalypse and the Bible concludes with a vision seen by John from the perspective of a high mountain. And what does John the Revelator see from this high mountain? He sees the bride of Christ. The wife of the Lamb, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. John sees the crystal city on the shores of the lake of fire. Revelation is John's apocalyptic vision of the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. That's why we emphasize this book during the Easter season. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just some event stuck in the past 2,000 years ago. Rather, it was the lighting of a fuse. It was the beginning of something that is ever unfolding as God in Christ through the Holy Spirit is bringing all of creation toward newness. The book of Revelation is the great vision of that. And so, John communicates his revelation of the triumph of Christ through a series of symbols, almost all of which are drawn from the Old Testament. John doesn't come up with these symbols on his own. He draws them from the Old Testament and then tends to magnify them. But most of the symbols that we find in the book of Revelation originally are found in Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and especially the book of Zechariah. It's as if 
John the Revelator gathers up the dreams of the Hebrew prophets and with those dreams he paints this glorious vision of Christian hope. Now the biggest mistake that people make about the end of the book of Revelation, and people do make lots of mistakes about the book of Revelation, that's truth be told. But the biggest mistake that people make about the end The final two chapters, chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, is they think it's about heaven. It's not. Just read it. I mean, just just sit down and read it today. It's not about heaven. Uh, The scene is set entirely on earth. If you want to speak of heaven, you could speak of it this way. You could say that this is heaven coming to earth. But the setting is still the earth. We're on earth, and now something from heaven is coming to earth. The kingdom is coming, and God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the vision that we have at the end of the Bible. And it's not even entirely a future vision. It's it's a vision in the process of becoming. It's not fully arrived, but it is in the process of becoming. Amen. And so what do we have? Well, we have... uh, we have a crystal city. That is, uh, this city, we talked about this a little bit last Sunday, is 1,500 miles cubed. It's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. That's very interesting. So the city is not, a, it's, not it's not the size of a city, it's the size of a continent. And it's, through no coincidence... It is the same geographical size as the Roman Empire, the time at which this book was composed. The vision is, is that the empire of Rome, with its beastly Caesars, is to be replaced with the empire from heaven, with the Lamb who reigns. Something is going to overlay what humanity has known that which was the the great superpower of the age the roman empire is to be somehow overcome and replaced but not in the beastly way of the pharaohs and the caesars but in the lamb-like way of jesus christ who laid down his life on the cross so it's 1500 miles long 1500 miles wide it's the city the size of a continent but it's also 1500 miles high which is of course a symbol that, in fact, it does connect heaven and earth. That whatever this, whatever this new Jerusalem is symbolizing, one of the things that we need to realize is that it is a connecting point between heaven and earth. It's where heaven and earth come together. We're told that this city is a very rare jewel. Whatever it is, it's extremely precious. It's like a jasper, clear as crystal. We have this... this This jasper city, but it's clear as crystal. It's translucent. In other words, there's nowhere to hide in this city. You know why? Because there's nothing to hide. You know, the empires of the beasts, they're always got something up their sleeve. They've always got, how many of you know they've got something to hide? You know, the principalities and powers that run the world as it is, they're always trying to hide something. But this kingdom from heaven has nothing to hide. It's transparent. That's a beautiful thing. It has a foundation of 12 different gemstones. 
They're listed in there. I'm not going to read them all, but there's, they're listed. There are 12 different gemstones. Well, this is, again, something that has been drawn from the book of Exodus. The careful reader who knows the Old Testament will go, oh, 12 gemstones? That's just like that breastplate that the high priest wore. And that's the point. What this new Jerusalem is, is it's the kingdom of priests. That comes from Revelation chapter 1, where it says that Jesus Christ has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Did you know you're a priest? Father Derek, you're, you're a priest. Amen. Amen. Mother Jenny, you're a priest. Uh, we're, we're, we're a kingdom of priests that are worshiping God, ministering to God, but also seeking to reconcile everyone around us, not only to God, but to one another. This is our, our priestly vocation. So the city is a kingdom of priests. It's the wife of the Lamb. It's the bride of Christ. It is, in fact, the church. In fact, that's what it is. New Jerusalem is not a vision of heaven. Rather, it's an idealized vision of the church. Indeed, it's idealized. Uh, that's for sure. But still, that's the vision. I mean, that the church never quite fully lives up in practice to the beautiful vision that we have presented here doesn't alter the fact that that is the aim. That's what we're pressing towards. That's what we're striving to become. Just like in the book of Ephesians, it talks about the church without spot or wrinkle. Well, you know, that's the goal. But right now it's got some spots and it's got some wrinkles, but we still keep moving in that direction, right? Amen. And so the vision um, of the new Jerusalem is interesting because it's not all there is. Sometimes, you know, you think, okay, well, we've got this world as it is and then someday... Uh, we'll go to heaven, or heaven will come to us, or a city will come, or something like that, and then that'll be all there is. No. Uh, this, this continent, remember, this is a vision. This is, this is symbol. Don't literalize this, but, uh, but try to discern the symbols. A city the size of a continent whose top is in the heavens. It's kind of like the Tower of Babel, except sanctified. Except, you know, not in rebellion to God, but in submission to God. This city... The size of a continent whose top is in heaven, who's translucent, who's clear, who has nothing to hide, who wears the breastplate of the high priest. It descends onto earth, but there are still out, there's, there's still outside the city. There's nations and kings and peoples. And we'll see eventually a lake of fire. There's all kinds of things outside of the city. So the, the new Jerusalem isn't all there is. Rather, it's a holy city set on earth. And there are nations, peoples, outside of the city. And it says, the nations will walk by the light of the city. In other words, the vision is that the earth, or the world, the people, the nations, are to be illumined by the light that comes from the city. Does that ring a bell? Is that maybe like, uh, you are the light of the world? A city set upon a hill that cannot be hid. Well, uh, a, a city the size of a continent that is 1,500 miles high, that cannot be hid. And it comes from heaven and it illumines the nations. I would think of this in terms of uh, 
the church at its best, and again, I, have to, I feel like I have to make all of these uh, clarifications and disclaimers because I know the church doesn't always live up to its calling, but nevertheless, uh, the church is to be and really has been the moral conscience of the world. Uh, you, you may be, you know, negative about the church because there's so much to criticize, but if you take the church completely out of the world as if there never were any church, I don't think it's the world you want to live in. I mean, it's, it's, there are still atrocities in the world, but it's the witness of the church through Jesus Christ that enables us to recognize them as atrocities and not just the way the world is. I mean, if the world has any awareness, any inkling, any sense that the least of these should be valued, where does that come from? That doesn't come from Rome. That doesn't come from Greek philosophers. Kindness and mercy and empathy were not considered values in the Roman Empire. We take it for granted that there is some sort of moral uh, inclination toward things like kindness and goodness and the dignity of all people and the least of these should be cared for and provided for. That doesn't come from the beast. That comes from the Lamb, and that comes from the wife of the Lamb who has preserved the message of Jesus Christ in the world. So this is the city giving light to the nations, providing moral conscience. And as such, the new Jerusalem cannot serve the self-interest of Rome or any other empire. It has to be other. I mean, there is, there's, there's the nations, and then there's the city of God. The new Jerusalem, the holy city. The city that comes from heaven. And it's distinct. It's, it's called holy because it's something radically different and other than the rest of the world. There's no temple in this city. So the great city where they worship Jesus Christ has no temple. Well, that's the way it is. Uh, the church, the vast global church, Christianity we could say maybe, uh, it doesn't, we don't have a single set-apart geographic temple. I mean, we don't have a, like the temple of Christianity is in what? Jerusalem or Rome or Constantinople or Tulsa. no. <laughs> No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, there is no single temple because the temple isn't anywhere. The temple is everywhere. We don't have a temple. We are the temple. I mean, we don't have a temple that's over there. We have a temple that is everywhere where two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus. We don't have a temple. We are the temple. That's beautiful. That's what's being communicated here. Now, the main thing, though, is that the city, this crystal city from heaven, does not exist for its own happiness. The purpose of the city is not for the people to go inside the city and play harps and hang out at their mansion and swim with the dolphins or whatever. Uh, no, the purpose of the city it doesn't exist for its own happy. It exists for the salvation of the nations that are still outside the city. 
Okay, so, so get that. The, per, the reason the city comes from heaven to earth is to provide salvation for the rest of those who are outside the city. In other words, the church is not an end in itself. Rather, the church is to be that community filled with the Holy Spirit that is a city of refuge. Say city of refuge. You know, you know about cities of refuge. They were, they're, they were in the Old Testament where someone that was accused and the mob was after them, the crowd was after them. Something had happened and the whole town had turned against them and wanted to kill them. They could run to the city of refuge and they would be safe. So for the accused and the beleaguered, the worn and the torn, the church is to be a city of refuge, a shelter from the storm. I was burned out from exhaustion. Buried in the hail, poisoned in the bushes, blown out on the trail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. I'll let you guess where I got that. There's always a line. It always fits. And so we are a city of refuge. We're a shelter from the storm. Now, we're told that in the city you will find the tree of life. Remember, the tree of life starts off in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, but then, you know, after the catastrophe, the way back to the garden is barred, and they can't get to the tree of life. But now the tree of life makes a reappearance. It shows up in the, it's, it's in the very beginning of the Bible, and then it's at the very end. It's recovered. But here's something interesting, a little bit technical, having to do with manuscripts, but I think it, it's cool. Um, most manuscripts say tree of life, but not all of them. You know, we have multiple manuscripts of ancient biblical texts, and that's what we translate from. Uh, some, most of them say tree of life, but not all of them. Some of them say tree of the lamb. I like that. I like it. I just put them together. Because what is the tree of the life? Well, the tree of the life is the tree of the, tree of the lamb. And, and see if you can guess. What, what do you think maybe the tree of the lamb would, what image would that conjure? What is that? What is the tree of the lamb? Somebody tell me. It's the cross. It's the, so the cross of Christ is not just some horrid in, implement by which Romans put Jesus to death. No, 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 no. In the resurrection, the tree of the cross becomes the tree of the lamb, becomes the tree of life. It's living and it radiates life. In fact, we're told that it bears fruit. So, so imagine a cross, a wooden cross, but now it's got, it's got branches, green branches flowing from it. And, it's, and it bears fruit, 12 kinds of fruit. Because this is reconstituted Israel. Twelve kinds of fruit, bearing fruit every month, and it's got leaves. And guess what they do with those leaves? This is from the book of Isaiah. They take those leaves and they go forth and they heal the nations. Don't, you, see, you see what John, by the Holy Spirit, is doing? All of these images trying to give you a very glorious concept of the church of Jesus Christ, which preserves the message of the cross, which is the tree of life that bears 12 kinds of fruit and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The city has uh, gates, 12 gates, three on each side, north, south, east, and west. North, south, east, and west, 
three gates on each side, 12 gates, always the number 12, 12, 12, 12, because this is, this is Israel redefined, not by, not by ethnicity, circumcision, Torah observance, but by faith, baptism, and allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's the new Israel. It's got 12 gates, three on each cardinal direction. You think about the history of the church. Its first primary movement was westward. Moved west. And so that's why Europe went from pagan to Christian because those, those westward-facing gates. Uh, but then it also moved up north. You know, whatever happened to all those Vikings? They were going around pillaging and plundering. What happened to those Vikings? Well, they kept pillaging and plundering their Christian neighbors to the south, but then they started hearing about Jesus, and eventually they got saved and quit pillaging and plundering their neighbors and settled down and became nice Viking farmers. And uh, that's, that's what happened. And, and, and about a thousand years ago, uh, people from the north up in the land of Rus began to stream into the city, and Russia became Christian. Uh, right now, the primary movement that we're seeing as far as church growth is in the global south. Uh, Latin America, Africa, sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, a tremendous growth in Christianity. And it's always moved a little bit to the east, too. That's been more challenging. But even in the first century, it made it to India, and there's a historic Indian uh, Christian communities in in the state of uh, Kerala and, and uh, uh, Madhra Pradesh and others. Um, but now uh, we're seeing a tremendous growth of the church in China. Did you know that China has about 100 million Christians? And these are real Christians because it's hard to be a Christian there. Uh, there's pressure on you. There's persecution. I read just this week about, uh, and I mean, you know, that you can go to church. It's not completely forbidden, although you have to go to a approved church, and there are, un, there are unofficial churches. But even if you go to the approved church, they're now putting cameras on the pulpit, the government is, with their facial recognition uh, software technology, they'll be able to know who's going to church. So there's some pressure. I don't know, I just want to go and go, I'm here. <laughs> Follower of Jesus. And so, north, south, east, and west, they're coming into the city, and the city's growing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we're told that the kings and peoples bring their glory into, as, as they're attracted, they come into the city, and they bring their glory with them. Well, what is their glory? Their glory is their, their cultural richness. Christianity is not a monolith. Um, when you believe in Jesus and begin to belong to the church, you don't have to become one thing culturally. There's a, there's a vast spectrum. And so we bring our cultures into the church and let, let Jesus sanctify them but not obliterate them. This is Christmas and Easter, by the way. You know, ever so often somebody will fiddle around on the internet and find out, oh my goodness, Christmas and Easter were originally pagan holidays. It has a pagan origin. We should get rid of them. It has a pagan origin. I have a pagan origin. But then I came to Jesus. 
I mean, no, we don't, we don't make any, we don't hide that. We're transparent in this, in this crystal city about that. Yes, Christmas and Easter were originally pagan festivals that got saved. They came to the Christian and said, it's okay, we're going to keep doing some of the same things in winter and spring that we've done, but instead we're going to focus on the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. I love that. I've done a lot of pastor's conferences in India over the years. And very often, um, there'll be delegate. these are large conferences, like a thousand pastors, maybe four thousand people in attendance, some of those. And they'll have delegations from all over, not just India, but they'll, they'll come from um, Assam, that's a state in, in eastern, and, and uh, Nagaland, which is a Nagaland is a state in the far east of India that is 90% Christian. Probably didn't know that. They'll come from Nagaland, they'll come from Nepal, they'll come from Bhutan, and they, they, they wear, and they're encouraged in this conference to wear their distinctive clothing. And there'll be nights of worship where it's not, you know, everybody doing yet another Hillsong song. They'll do songs with their style of music, with their instrumentation, with their, with their you know, this, this is music from Bataan, but now it's praising Jesus. I love that. And then they wear their, their, their folk uh, clothing and they do their dances. I've even seen, uh, are you, is anybody familiar with uh, classical Indian dance? One of those beautiful things. A lot of people think, well, you know, it's connected with Hinduism. I don't know, maybe, but I know that I've seen so many of these delegations that take that art form of classical Indian dance and they use it in praise to Jesus. See, that's, that's the kings and the nations bringing their glory into the city. What is uh, idolatrous is cleansed. It's, it's taken out. But you don't get rid of the cultural richness. You keep it. And now let it glorify God in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So, in the closing chapters of the Bible, the lost Garden of Eden and Abraham's sought-after city are combined in the garden metropolis of the Lamb. The arrival of New Jerusalem is celebrated as a great wedding. So just as Jesus began his ministry at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now the ascended Christ presides over the wedding of heaven and earth. The tragic divorce of heaven and earth has been reconciled by the Lamb. And today it's the task of every local church to be a kind of suburb of New Jerusalem. Amen. And so we see how Revelation presents its readers then and now with a stark choice. The way of the beast or the way of the lamb? This is the invitation that comes at the end of the book. Both have been depicted in the book, and now you have to choose. The way of the beast, which is the way of pride and power, greed, war, all of that sort of thing, or the way of the lamb, which is the way of peace, mercy, love, grace, forgiveness. The way of the beast always leads, always leads, always leads to Armageddon. What is Armageddon? It's only mentioned one time in the Bible, one verse. But Armageddon, it's Tel Megiddo. It's, it's, it's a reference to this city that has the misfortune of being set in 
what has been a perennial battlefield, so the city has been destroyed and rebuilt 26 times. We always visit that when we're doing our Holy Land pilgrimages. And so it's an icon of warfare. It's like saying Flanders Field, Omaha Beach, uh, Guadalcanal, something like that. When you say Armageddon, you think of a a battlefield. And if you follow the way of the beast, you're always going to get to Gettysburg. You're always going to get to Flanders Field. You're always going to get to Armageddon if you follow the beast. So Armageddon is always a possibility, but never an inevitability. I mean, think of, think of Berlin, 1945. What is that? That's Armageddon. Why? Follow the way of the beast. That's where you get. When human societies follow the way of the beast, that is the way of power, war, greed, idolatry, exploitation, domination, all of that, they eventually join the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet in the lake of fire. This is how chapter 20 ends. With multitudes joining the dragon, that is the devil, the beast, that is the Roman Empire, the false prophet, that is the propaganda machine of the Roman Empire. Um, Chapter 20 ends with multitudes in the lake of fire with the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That's how chapter 20 ends, but it's not the end. In the final vision, we have the crystal city on the shores of the lake of fire. So there's a lake of fire symbol, lake of fire. But on the shores of the lake of fire, there's what? There's this continental size city that has come from heaven made of crystal. And to those living in the hellscape, that is the abode of the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, that is those living in the broken societies ruined by accusation, empire, propaganda, etc., an invitation is given. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let everyone who hears say, come. Let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. And then John, God bless John the Revelator, John gives us the most hopeful vision in the entire book of Revelation when he says, her gates will never be shut. So there's the picture. People have followed the way of the beast and they're in a lake of fire. Their lives, their society, everything else is in ruins. It's in tatters, smoke and sulfur. And it's... But there's this city made of crystal that is the wife of the Lamb, that is the bride of Christ, that has come down uniting heaven and earth. And these gates are always open. They never shut the gates. And the, the inhabitants, the citizens of the New Jerusalem are saying, Hey! Are you thirsty? And they're out there. Some of them will hear it and go, I'm in a lake of fire. Well, why don't you rethink some things? You can come in, you know. I think I'll just stay a little longer. I don't want to get all religious or anything. But some of them will say, You know, it kind of looks better in there. Yeah, we got a river. (laughs) Just flows all the time, clear as crystal. It's not made of fire. It's made of water. It's made of life, actually. It's the water of life. So if if you're thirsty, 
If you're burned, burned out, come on in. Just, just come. Wash your robe in the blood of the Lamb. It's free. Just come. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus and come on into this city. That's the picture at the end of the book. The gates of New Jerusalem exist to help people find their way into the city. The gates never exist to shut people out. I want to say that again. The gates exist only to bring people into the city. The gates never exist to shut people out. That's not the purpose of the gates. The gates are never shut. The final word is what is found in the final chapter, whosoever will may come. You've heard that. Where is it? That's, that's in the final chapter of the book of Revelation. That's the invitation from the crystal city on the shores of the lake of fire. Whosoever will may come. So as individuals and as a society, both, we either cooperate with the crystal city or we cooperate with the lake of fire. These two alternative fates are simultaneously present at the close of the Bible. A lake that never stops burning and a garden city whose gates are never shut. And we have to choose where we want to live. In the final metaphor of the city of the Lamb, um, the city does not invade the lake of fire. The holy city does not force the followers of the beast to follow the lamb. If they want to stay in the lake of fire, they can. They're not forced. You see, the kingdom of God is without coercion. I've said it many times. In the kingdom of God, we persuade by love, witness, spirit, reason, rhetoric, but never by force. If we use the ways of the beast, which is force, to save people from the beast, we become the beast. Always remember that. The task of the church is not to make the world the church. Listen to me. The task of the church is not to make the world the church. I'm quoting from good old Hierwas. He says, it's the task of the church to make the world the world. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? It's not the task of the church to go forth and with political power make the world the church. Here's how you have to behave. We're going to pass some laws so you can act like Christians. No. The task of the church is not to make the world the church. The task of the church is to simply be the church to the extent that it makes the world the world. And people can see that if the people can't look, if people can't say, here in the church, they're characterized by love and peace and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Out here in this lake of fire, they're characterized by scapegoating and violence and and accusation, and domination, and criticism. The task of the church is to be so radically other that we know that there is the world, and there is the church, there is the lake of fire, and there is the crystal city. But if people can't tell the difference between the two, then the whole program falls apart. One more time. It's not the task of the church to make the world the church. That's Christendom. That's a failed project. It's the task of the church to make the world the world. And present the saving alternative by the way we live our lives. So, our task is simply to be the church. 
embodying Christ, married to Jesus, faithful to Him, to what He taught us and how He lived and how He loved. We don't go out and force change. We just stand humbly, hopefully, in the gate and say, if you're thirsty, come. If you're looking for love, come. If you're looking for forgiveness, come on in. If you want to find a peace that passes understanding, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want something better than what you've had, please come. That's the vision at the end of the book of Revelation. A crystal city on the shores of the lake of fire where its gates are never closed. And in the name of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, we say, come. Come to the city. Come to salvation. Come to Jesus. Amen.